time together once a week on Jesus' day to sit under Jesus' word to be shaped and changed. It's only if the Holy Spirit of God shows up that this is a useful time, but we've been asking him to do that. I heard this awesome quote from Charles Spurgeon this week. Here's what he said about preaching. On the last great day, none of us will be offended with Christ's ministers for speaking plainly to us. So sometimes we get offended on the morning of straightforward gospel preaching, but on that day, no one's ever going to say, oh, my, my pastor brought it too straight and too clear for my soul. And so we seek to give ourselves to the words of Scripture, and if they're sharp, that's good. They're shaping us, pruning us, calling us to Christ. All right, I'm going to uh, switch this up. Give me one second. Forgot to do that. So you can track with me in my preaching. Last week, my big question for us was, do we give? Do we give generously? This week it is, do we pray? Do we pray earnestly? You've got three enemies in your life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three are intent, intent on doing everything that they can to keep you from prayer, to keep you from getting after God, to keep you from ever seeking the Lord. There's a thousand ways that that happens. Let me just run through two with you that our text is going to knock over if we do a good job with this. Two lies, kind of like walls, that get thrown up that hold us out from prayer. Here's the first one. God does not answer prayer. God does not answer prayer. You know what this sounds like in your head, right? God is not there. He is not listening. You are talking to the ceiling. Have you felt that before? Answered prayer is like unicorns and tooth fairies and honest speakers of the house and tasty tofu. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. So just get over this silly notion that God hears or answers or is connected with your praying. Just stop it. It's religious crutch nonsense for weak people but you are strong and secular. They need God. You do not. You can do this. You got this. You're from Boston. You are savvy and self-sufficient. You are smart. Don't lower yourself to asking God for some kind of divine help. Can you feel the double-edged evil in this lie? It lowers God from being almighty and able to do anything and it exalts you to not needing any help from the outside. The result of believing this is, of course, we wouldn't pray. We don't pray. And then here's the second one our text is going to help with. Well, God answers other people's prayers, but not yours. Sure, God answers other people's prayers, but not yours. Prayer is only for holy people of great, great 
faith. You are too weak and too sinful and too ordinary for your praying to make any kind of a difference. Be honest. You pray for like 93 seconds and you're thinking about what? Project at work? What's trending on Twitter? What are we going to eat tonight? What time is the game on? Did I sign up for spin class? When you pray, if somebody hits you with some truth serum and you started talking honestly, you would say, yeah, I'm saying words because I'm supposed to, but I don't even really believe that God's listening or that he's going to do anything because I know how pathetic I am. So like, let's just let the super Christians pray, the super saints with the super faith, the Bible scholars, the pastors, but not me, not me. Can you feel the double-edged lie, the double-edged sword of this lie? It is lowering God to being handcuffed by the, the perfectness of your praying, and it is passively, aggressively, passively, aggressively exalting you to limiting God until I get my act together. It's saying that you are the fulcrum around which prayer spins. What's the result if we believe this? We kind of start to pray and then we're discouraged immediately and we don't bother. My aim today is simply to allow this story from Scripture to expose these two lies, to just bulldoze these two walls and propel us as individuals, as gospel communities, as as a seven-mile road church family to pray, to earnestly pray. That's what we're going for. All right, let me jump right into the text, and we'll see what it looks like for Jesus' people to pray, and we'll see the kind of thing that the Lord does when we will just give ourselves to this pursuit together. All right, context, book of Acts, story after story after story of the advance of the gospel in the first generation of the church. That's this book that we're working through. In chapter 12, we are back in Jerusalem. This is a wicked big church right here. Thousands, thousands believing in Jesus. They gather on Sundays in the temple courts for a big old worship service, and then they gather in smaller communities, gospel communities, to break bread, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to love each other, and to pray together. The first time that this church got slammed with persecution, the leaders were spared. The apostles were spared. But that's about to change in this story. Herod is now in power in Jerusalem. He is trying to butter up and curry favor with the influential Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. What better way to do that than to stamp out this little sect of Jesus people that they so virtually despise? Think of some store or some sport or the mall that you would just love it if it didn't exist next weekend. Wouldn't that be awesome? No more mall. That kind of joy would be in the hearts of these Jewish leaders if there was what? No more Jesus community. They tried to be done with Jesus, 
Now they would love to be done with this community. What better way to take out this community than taking out its leaders? That's the context. Let's work the words of the Bible together. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Oh, no. Oh, no. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of this church. James is not only an apostle, he was one of the three in Jesus' inner circle. James was in Jesus' tightest crew. James was one of the sons of thunder. He was a force for the gospel. This man was a grace-preaching, disciple-making beast. And in a moment, a minute, he is arrested, he's whisked off, and he is beheaded. He's gone. James is unceremoniously executed. There's like 10 sermons in this one sentence. You know that Jesus does not owe you a glamorous exit from this life, right? You know that Jesus does not owe you 80 years and pretty good health. He doesn't. You know that Jesus does not owe you a chance to say your goodbyes. He doesn't. You know that you may give your entire life to Jesus, like James did. You may give up money and safety and a career track and the approval of your family, like James did. You may serve Jesus beautifully and faithfully and fruitfully, and he may allow you to get cut down right in the middle of that life and that ministry. Just have it end in a day. How are we supposed to think on this verse? What kind of a God allows his servants to go out like this? Why didn't God protect James that day? Why would he allow this kind of suffering? Here's what we know. This is a broken world. It is attended, every inch of it, every moment of it, by wickedness and evil and rebellion and sin that's in you, that's in us, that's in this world. The truth is that this kind of a verse should be the only kind of a story that is told in any of our lives. Pain, betrayal, greed, violence, loss, and death, that should be the only human story, the only one. But God is so merciful and so gracious that these scenes are actually the exceptions to the rule of our lives. Most of our days and years are not attended by this kind of thing. And the gospel also teaches us that even these days, these days 
they are not outside of the loving care of God for us. We know that Christ has stepped into this mess. He has suffered worse than any of us, and he has overcome sin and suffering. We know that Jesus is making all things new. His empty tomb is the evidence of that. We know that there is this day that is coming when there will be no more martyrs, no more beheadings of the saints. And sin and sinners murder itself and all murderers like Herod will be gone. That's the gospel that we stand on when we come to a verse like this. And so in the meantime, when God does allow for this kind of awful sin-induced suffering, it means we, we roll back into two things. Number one is, he is sweeping this saint into eternal life. Nick, you might need to get the speaker on the stage. Who is the happiest person, the Jeru- person in the Jerusalem church on this day? Who is it? It's James. To live is Christ. To die is gain. This is awful for those left behind, but for him, he swept into the presence of Jesus. And what else is going on for the rest of us in a story like this? Jesus is driving us to himself. Suffering magnifies the grace and the glory and the reality of God by driving us to him. Driving us to him. All right, we're going to see that drive happen in a minute, but hold that thought because things actually get worse in the text. When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, the Jewish leaders, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Okay, you have to feel this. The Jewish leaders loved seeing James murdered. They loved it. Golf claps, fist pumps, They are down with this new public policy of Herod's. Let's behead the apostles of Jesus, just like we crucified Jesus. Herod pulls this and he goes, okay, okay. You like that? Good. There's more where that came from. He tells his soldiers, go get me Peter. Peter. All right, now Peter was not the first pope. That's dirty hermeneutics. My son is a freshman at MC. He's working through papal theology, and we're having good conversations on this. But even though he wasn't the first pope, Peter was beloved. They looked to him for leadership. He was a spokesman for that early church. If you can take Peter out, what happens? you have a good chance of the whole Jesus movement unraveling. Imagine you're watching the Super Bowl. The Patriots are back in it again, right? You're down in chicken wings and chicken tenders. and Second play of the first quarter, Gronk tears up his knee. Next series, Brady gets drilled from the blind side. 
His helmet's over there, the ball's over there, and he's just lying on the ground in a heap. What happens to your Super Bowl party right there? Gets very, very quiet, doesn't it? You're like, oh no. First Gronk, now Brady's on the ground. He better get up or we are done. It's over. Do you feel that? That is this right here. This arrest would have been devastating for the church in Jerusalem. When he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. All right, four squads of four soldiers. That's 16 guys that look like they belong in the UFC, right? Only they have swords and clubs and maces. Not maces, maces. They're going to go through the night, 12-hour shifts, three hours each so that no one falls asleep. Two of them get chained to the prisoner. Two of them stand guard at the door. In other words, what? Peter is not escaping from this prison. You have a better chance of getting an iPhone over a 14-year-old Matinon student at the mall than you do of getting Peter out of this prison. Never, ever going to happen. You know about Justinian law? Being a prison guard is a great job, except that if your prisoner escapes, whatever the sentence was coming for them is dropped on you. In this case, the sentence is beheading. These 16 guys are not losing track of Peter. He did not have a little hammer like Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption. He did not have friends on the outside with helicopters and guns like Sylvester Stallone in whatever that very bad recent prison break movie was. It's just a matter of time. If you don't feel this, you're not going to feel the glory of this story. It's just a matter of time and he's dead. We got seven days. Now we got six. Now we got five, four, three, two. We are picking the story up the night before Peter is dead and the church is finished before it got started. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Is that what you would have done right there? Come on, pop quiz. You, you, what would you have done in this dark moment attended by suffering, impossible situation? Who would have despaired? Just been like it's over. First James, one of the three. Now Peter, the big man of the three. I'm telling you, they're going to go find John in whatever hole he's hiding in. He's going to be crucified, killed, beheaded, something next, and this whole thing is done. Often, we just throw in the towel when terrible, difficult, suffering, hard, impossible circumstances come our way and show up like this. Many of us would have just despaired. Who would have grumbled and complained? I'm just really mad at God right now. First he lets James get killed. Now he's got Peter in prison. 
Either he's not sovereign or he's not good, but he can't be both. I won't even lower myself to talking to him right now. Ours is the generation that teaches you that it's okay to be angry with God. It's one of the most wicked, most flattering, most Christ-dishonoring heresies of our day that we get to shake our fists at God and put Him in the dock and point our finger at Him and slam the door in His face. We're too good to talk to Him. This is the God who has mercifully saved us from hell by putting forward His perfectly righteous, only begotten Son to die in our place. This is the God who right now, by His great power, is keeping for you an inheritance, unfading, undefiled, imperishable. This is the God who allows suffering but is always working in it for His highest glory and your deepest joy. Yes, you are allowed to express frustration in prayer to God. The Psalms are filled with those prayers. God, where are you right now? What is happening right now? I'm dying right now. Don't forget about me. Hey, over here, where did you go? I'm confused. Help me. But we do not shake our fists in God's face and strut away from Him because we are angry. By faith, we don't question His goodness and His power and His love and His providence. Instead, we run to God, run to God in prayer and saying, I know you're good, and if you don't show mercy, I'm dead. Some of us are so proud that when suffering comes, we judge God for what he would allow to happen to us. Who would have tried to work some connections right here? Is that who you are? So we know that up in Antioch, where the gospel was going, gangbusters was a a governor, a ruler who was very close friends with Herod, who would have been like, politics, let's play the politics game. Let's manipulate this. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to fix this thing with my connections and my savvy. Anybody in here would have planned a midnight jailbreak? We're going in. 16 gods, whatever, we got Jesus. I got my ninja outfit and my nunchucks I got at my birthday party in eighth grade. Billy's going to get some blueprints for the prison. I seen Mission Impossible 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 like 10 times. Let's do this. You're also a part of the generation that cherishes, values, esteems, means, and methods, and manpower much more highly than it esteems the living God. That's us. That's our church. That's me. But I'm so glad that it's not our fathers and mothers in the faith. What is the immediate gut level, foundational first response of the Christians in this story? They don't grumble, they don't despair, they don't lean into their potentialities and capacities and connections. What do they do? It's very simple. They get after God together. They pray. 
they respond to suffering, bad suffering, by moving toward God in prayer. Luke calls it earnest prayer. I love that. It's intense. It's desperate. It's fiery. Everything's pitch black. The escape hatches are welded shut. There's there's no possible way this thing is ever turning around. What do holy people do right there? What do they do? They pray. Bishop John Shelby Spong is a wicked man. He may still be alive, a false shepherd. He has led tens of thousands of children and young people into terrible sexual sin. He has written book after book, assaulting sound doctrine and gospel truth. But you know when I knew for certain that he did not love or fear God? His wife was diagnosed with cancer, and the people in his parish surged to prayer for her. And do you know how he responded to them praying for his wife in this moment of suffering? He scolded them for it. He mocked them for it in one of his books. He said, what kind of a God would have things work this way? My wife gets prayed for because she's a Christian and she has Christian friends, but some lady in Mongolia doesn't because she's not a Christian and so God won't heal her. He put God in the dock and he judged on God and he scorned earnest prayer as a response to the suffering in this life. There are so many things theologically wrong with that statement in that book. But the first one is this. It shows no fear of God. And it shows no faith in the living God. I want to shake this guy and say, John, of course the Christian women in your church ran to prayer for your wife. You're a pastor. Do you not understand that the degree to which we don't respond to suffering and desperate circumstances and impossible situations with heartfelt, fervent prayer is the degree to which we don't yet get who God is and what He can do, man. That we don't understand that all suffering is given to us by God to drive us to Himself so that He can make much of His power in our circumstances. You know who knew that to be true was the Christians in this story. And so they prayed. They prayed. The Lord answered their prayer. He walked Peter out of that prison. Uh, I don't have time to hone in on the story. It's your archetypal Jesus prison break, right? It's objectively true in this season of wild signs and wonders showing off the advance of the gospel in this first generation. It is subjectively true for anybody in this room who has experienced new birth, right? You're in prison and you're on death row and there's nothing you can do about it and you're done just waiting to die. And Jesus, by his spirit, through his gospel, shows out, breaks your chains, and whisks you into new life. And you have no idea what just happened. But then you find yourself outside of that prison cell by the grace of Jesus. God does these things objectively. 
and he does them subjectively. The point is, the Lord answers prayer for impossible things. He does that. When we pray, he does wild and amazing stuff. Now hold that word amazing. I'm just going to jump to the end. We're going to see that word again. I want to go to verse 12. Peter ends up outside of the prison on the street. It's the middle of the night, and he realizes, oh, shoot, I I wasn't dreaming. I'm outside of the prison gates right now. He immediately throws himself up against the nearest wall, right? You have to picture this. He's on death row, and now he's an escapee. So he's up against the dark shadows of the wall, and he's skimmying from house to house until he can get to the place where he knows prayer will be being made for him. If you don't think it's an adventure to serve Jesus, you don't know Jesus yet. Here's the next verse. When Peter realized this, he snuck through the shadows to the house of Mary, quiet, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. All right, so here they are, earnest prayer. Thousands of people in this church, maybe 50 or 60 of them gathered in this, in this house. This is not a loud, charismatic, holy roller, hill songs rocking and tambourines are going prayer meeting. I don't know if you've been to one of those. This is a, oh no, Peter's in prison, we got to be quiet or they're going to come get us next kind of quiet prayer meeting. That's this prayer meeting. But it's earnest. And then we see this. Peter knocked at the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. All right, big house. There were some wealthy Christians in this church. You can be rich and holy and serve the cause of Jesus' gospel. You can do it. And Mary was doing that. She just didn't let her money own her. She was putting her home to use, risking everything, gathering to pray to God that Peter might be free. So that's beautiful in itself. And Rhoda, which means rosebud or little rosy, little rosy, she's probably a teenager, she hears a tapping at the back door. I figured that's because she's a teenager and she was bored and she was like looking for an iPad to play on, but she might have been a holy teenager. Anyway, she's the servant girl and she hears the tapping on the door. She runs out there. Peter is hiding in the shadows. Rosie, Rosie, it's me. Let me in. Come on, let me in. And you're supposed to laugh when you read that she doesn't let him in because she's so excited. She's a kid. She runs inside to tell everybody. She runs into the prayer meeting. She gets real loud and she says, Peter, Peter, Peter's outside. And how does everyone respond? They said to her, you're out of your mind. You crazy? But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It's his angel. Must be his angel or something. But Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened, they saw it was him. And they were amazed. Okay, I absolutely love this part of the story. It is so helpful and so encouraging to me. Come on, what were you expecting their response to be when Peter knocks on the gate? Come on, read these stories with me. These are the superheroes of the Bible. 
These were the first Christians. They saw Jesus, many of them literally risen from the dead, touched his, his, his scars. Their faith was their sight. They didn't even need to believe even though they hadn't seen him like us. If anyone had super faith that God could do anything, it was these people that had seen Jesus physically risen from the dead. I'm expecting them to be like hearing someone knocking and going, we know exactly who that is. And it ain't dominoes. It's Peter. Of course the Lord walked Peter out of this prison. This story is going to be in the book of Acts. Sixteen Roman guards are nothing for our God. If not that, at least I was expecting them to go, wait, 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 that's Peter? Let him in, let him in, let him in. You don't even get that. Please don't miss this. You don't even get that. What do you get? You get the least faith-filled, most skeptical, not believing, pathetic response. It's not even just unbelief, it's sarcasm, right? They're taunting poor little Rosie who knows that Peter's outside. Come on, Rosie. I mean, yes, we're praying it all because, because we love God and there's nowhere else we can go, but I mean, he's not going to rescue Peter from that prison. There's 16 Roman guards on him. He, it can't be Peter. Justinian law, it's never going to happen. What are they praying for? I mean, maybe they're just praying, uh, please move on Herod's heart and like change his mind before tomorrow. Just give him a dream during the night, scare him. Please have some other authority come in and, and like change this situation. I don't know, God, but just we don't want to see Peter die. You got to do something, please. But they did not have the faith for this. Does everyone see that? They did not have the faith that God could free Peter from the prison, that was outside the scope of their faith. In other words, what? This is not a story about faith superheroes. It's not. This is not the Justice League of prayer right here. This is not some elite breed of holy praying ninjas. This is ordinary, weak, regular Christians who are coming around to believe the gospel, just like me, just like you. It was not the super measure of their faith or the perfectness of their petitions. It's just that they were humble and desperate people willing to pray earnestly to God. That's it. And it was the grace and the power and the sovereign wisdom of God who is able, and not just able, but loves to do, here's how Paul says it in Ephesians, far more abundantly than we can even ask or think. You feel that? They just throw up some desperate, weak, meager prayers, and what does God do? Way more abundantly than they were even asking or thinking. Just ordinarily, regular people who gave themselves to prayer. All right, here's our big idea. When ordinary people pray earnestly, 
amazing things can happen. What was that last verse? They saw Peter and they were amazed. If some ordinary people would just begin to pray earnestly, just seriously, we're going to pray. We're going to seek you, God. Amazing things can happen. Our lives don't work. Our church doesn't survive. Our marriages do not stay together. Our kids do not believe the gospel. Our neighbors do not find Christ if we don't believe that this is true. If we get stuck on God doesn't answer prayer, we're dead. Or if we get stuck on God's not going to answer our prayer, we're too pathetic and weak in our praying, we're dead. Instead, if we can just let this story propel us to when ordinary people earnestly pray, the Lord responds and does amazing things. I want that to mark our church. I want that to mark our gospel communities. You, you should leave with a vision for what prayer can look like in your gospel community. That's all this was. It was a gospel community hanging out in Mary's house. Not super people at all, but they were diligently and fervently seeking the Lord in prayer. And I mean unbelievable advance of the gospel through that. All right, where do you get hung up? For some of you, you have lost faith that God is there and that he answers prayer. I'm going to pray for you now that he would awaken that thing in you again. That he would awaken in you an understanding that he is the living God. He is mighty. There is nothing that can hold back his hand and we get to participate with that through prayer. Or do you get holed up because you know God's awesome, but you know there's no way he's going to listen to you praying. You are way too weak and ordinary and you don't know the words to say and you just can't believe that God could actually do big stuff. Would you please just give yourself to prayer and let him worry about the big stuff? Ordinary people seeking God in meager but earnest prayer. And that frees him to just doing amazing stuff. It's our only hope. Let's pray for this together. Father, thanks for these stories. We're so stupid. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to stand someday with Jacob. He's going to say, didn't you read my stories of what God did? Joshua's going to say, didn't, didn't you read the words the Spirit gave you about the walls of Jericho coming down? Moses is going to say, didn't you see God split the Red Sea and fed us in the wilderness? Jesus is going to say, didn't you see it recorded in Scripture that the Father raised me from the dead? Little Rosie is going to say, but didn't you see that we prayed and God walked Peter out of prison? Father, we are in the suburbs. We are amazed by the most ridiculous, petty junk. I, I pray that you would raise the level of our amazement, that we would see our sons and daughters believe the gospel, that we would see marriages healed, that we would see lost people found by the grace of Jesus. 
that we would see a church that should not make it, make it with flying colors because of the grace of Jesus. We're going to seek you in prayer. We're going to get after you, Father. And I pray that you would be hearing our prayers and doing, like you said, way more abundantly beyond what even we think you could do, even what we could imagine you could do. That's who you are. Would you forgive us for lifting ourselves up in so many ways? Would you humble us this morning? Would you give us also a right vision for who who you are and what you're going to do, even through suffering, as we give ourselves to pray? Would you meet us in that, I ask? Amen. Amen.